Part Seven of the Queen of the Martian Catacombs by Lee Douglas Brackett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part Seven, the last part. He was lying on his face, his cheek pressed against the cool coral. He opened his eyes, his mind groping for the shreds of some remembered terror. He saw, vaguely at first, and then with terrible clarity as his vision became clear, a man lying close beside him. A tall man, very strongly built, with skin burned almost to blackness by exposure. A man who looked at him with eyes that were startlingly light in his dark face. His own eyes, his own face. He cried out and struggled to his feet, trembling, staggering, and its body felt strange to him. He looked down upon the strangeness of another man's limbs, the alien shaping of flesh and sinew upon alien bones. The face of the dark giant who lay upon the coral mocked him. It watched but did not see. The eyes were blank, empty, without soul or intelligence. The mind of Eric John Stark fought in its alien prison for sanity. Beryl's voice spoke to him. Her hand was on his shoulder, Kynon's shoulder. All is well, wild man, do not fear. Kynon's mind is in your body, still sleeping at my command, and you are Kynon now. It was not an easy thing to accept, but he knew that it was so and he knew that he had wished it to be so. It was easier to be calm after he turned his back on the other. Beryl took him in her arms and held him until he had stopped shuddering, oddly like a mother with a frightened child. Then she kissed him, smiling, and said, The first time is hard, I can remember, and that was very long ago. She shook him gently. Now come. We will take your body to a place of safety, and then I must tell you all of Kynon's plans for those outside." She spoke to the thing that lay upon the coral, saying, "'Get up,' and it rose obediently and followed where Beryl led, to a tiny barred niche in a side passage. It made no protest when it was left locked safely in. "'Only I can give it back to you,' said Beryl softly. "'Remember that.' Stark said, "'I will remember.' He went with Beryl to Kynon's quarters in the palace. He sat among Kynon's possessions, clothed in Kynon's flesh, and learned how Kynon's mind had planned to loose a red tide upon the peaceful cities of the border. Only a small part of his mind was attentive to this. The rest of it was concerned with the redness of Beryl's hair and the warmth of her lips, and with the heady knowledge that it was possible to be alive and young forever, never to lose the pride of strength, never to know the dimming sight and failing mind of age, to go on like a child in an endless playground with no fear of tomorrow. It was nearly dawn. Beryl rose. She had told him much, but not the things Fiona had told him, of secret treachery she had planned with Delgon. 
She helped Stark to clothe Kynon's body in the harness of war, with the long sword and the shield and the shining spear. Then she set her lips to his, so that his borrowed heart threatened to choke him with its pounding, and her eyes were wondrously bright and beautiful. "'It is time,' she whispered. She walked beside him, as he had seen her beside Kynon in Valkus, stepping like a queen. They came out of the palace, onto the steps where Luhar had died. There were beasts waiting, trapped for war, and an escort of tall chiefs with pipers and drummers and link boys to light the way. Stark mounted Kynon's beast. It sensed the wrongness in him, hissing and rearing, but he held it down and imperiously raised his hand. Throbbing drums and skirling pipes, tossing flames where the link boys ran with the torches, a clash of metal and a cheer, and Kynon of Shun rode down through the streets of Sinharat to the coral cliffs with the red-haired woman at his side. They were waiting. The men of Kesh and the men of Shun were gathered below the cliffs waiting. Stark led the way, as Beryl had told him to, onto a ledge of coral above them. Delgon was there, with the outlanders and a handful of Valkysians. He looked tired and ill-tempered. Stark knew that he had been busy for hours with last-minute preparations. The first pale rays of dawn broke across the desert. A vast ringing cry went up from the gathered armies. After that there was silence, a taut, expectant hush. There was no fear in Stark now. He was past that. Fear was too small an emotion for what was about to be. He saw Delgon's golden eyes, hot with a cruel excitement. He saw Beryl's secret triumph in her smile. He looked down upon the warriors and let the magnificent voice of Kynon ring out across the soundless air. "'There will be no war,' he said. "'You have been betrayed.' In the moment that was left to him he confessed the lie of the Rama's crowns, and then Beryl, who was behind him now, had moved like a red-haired fury to drive her dagger into his heart. In his own body Stark might have escaped the blow, but the reflexes of Kynon were not as his. They were swift enough to postpone death. The blade bit deep, but not where Beryl had wished it. He turned and caught her by the wrists and said to Delgon, "'She has betrayed you, too. Freka lies in a coral pit.' and I am not Kynon." Beryl tore away from him. She spurred her beast toward the Valkysian. She would have broken past him, through the escort and up the cliffs to safety in the tunnels under Sinharat, but Delgon was too quick. One hand caught in the masses of her hair. She was dragged screaming from the saddle, and even then her screams were not of fear but of fury. She clawed at Delgon, and he fell with her to the ground. The tall chieftains of the escort came forward, but they were dazed and confused by the anger that was rising in them. Delgon's wiry body arched. 
he flung the woman over the ledge, and what happened to her after that Stark did not see nor wish to see. He was shouting again to the barbarians the tale of Delgon's treachery. Behind him, on the ledge, there was turmoil, where Delgon ran on foot between the beasts, and the outlanders made their try for safety. Below him in the desert, where there had been silence, a great deep muttering was growing, like the first growling of a storm, and the ranks of spears rippled like wheat before the wind. And Stark felt the slow running out of Kynon's blood inside him, where Beryl's dagger stood out from his back. They had headed Delgon away from the path up the cliff. The two loose mounts had been caught and held. They had tried to catch Delgon, but he was light and fast, and slipped away from them. Now he broke back toward Kynon's great beast. Knocked the dying man from the saddle, charged through the milling chieftains, who were hampered by their own numbers in that narrow space. He leaped, and the arms of Kynon, driven by the will of Eric John Stark, encircled him and held him and would not let him go. The two men crashed to the ledge. Stark let out one harsh cry of agony, and then was still, his hands locked around the Valkyrian's throat, his eyes intent and strange. Men came up, and he gasped, He is mine! And they let him be. Delgon did not die easily. He managed to get his dagger out and gashed the other side until the naked ribs showed through. But once again Stark's mind was free in some dark immensity of its own. He was living again the dream he had in Valkus, and this was the end of the dream. And Chaka had a grip at last on the demon with yellow eyes that hungered for his life, and he would not let go. The yellow eyes widened, they blazed, and then they slowly dimmed until the last flicker of life was gone. The strength went out of Inchaka's hands. He fell forward over his prey. Below, on the sand, Beryl lay, and her outstretched hair was as red as blood in the fiery dawn. The men of Kesh and the men of Shun flowed in a resistless tide up over the coral cliffs. The chieftains and the pipers and the link boys joined them, hunting the outlanders and the wolves of Valkus through the streets of Sinharat. Unnoticed, a dark-haired girl ran down the path to the ledge. She bent over the body of Kynon, pressing her hand to its heart. Tears ran down and mingled with the blood. A low, faint moan came from the man's lips. Weeping like a child, Fiona drew a tiny vial from her girdle and poured three drops of pale liquid on the unresponsive tongue. He had come a long way. He had been down in the deep black valleys of the place of darkness, and the iron frost was in his bones. He had climbed the bitter mountains where no creature of the twilight belt might go and live. There was light now. He had been lost and wandering, but he had won back to the light. His tribe, his people, would be waiting for him. 
but he knew that he would never see them. He remembered then with the old terrible loneliness that they were not truly his people. They had raised him, but they were not of his blood. And he remembered also that they were dead, slain by the miners who had needed all the water of the valley for themselves, slain by the miners who had taken Enchaka and put him in a cage. With stark terror he thought he was again in that cage, with the leering, bearded faces peering in at him. But in the blinding dazzle of light he could see no bars. There was only one face, the anxious, pitying face of a girl. Fiala. His brain began to clear. Memory returned bit by bit, the fragments fitting themselves gradually into place. Kynon, Delgon, Berald, Sinharat, the ever-living. He remembered now with perfect clarity that he was dying, and it seemed a terrible thing to die in the body of another man. For the first time, fully, he felt the separation from his own flesh. It seemed a blasphemous thing, more terrible than death. Fianna was weeping. She stroked his hair and whispered, I am so glad. I was afraid, afraid you would never wake. He was touched, because he knew that she loved him and would be sad. He lifted his hand to touch her face, to comfort her. He saw the fingers of that hand, dark against her cheek. Dark. His own fingers, his own hand. He was not on the ledge. He was back in the coral crypt beneath the palace. The light that had dazzled his eyes was not the sun, but only the flare of torches. He sat up, his heart pounding wildly. Kynon of Shun lay beside him on the coral. He was quite dead, his head encircled by a crown of fire, his side open to the white bone where Delgon's blade had struck, the wound that Kynon himself had never felt. The golden coffer was open. The second crown lay near Fiona with the rod beside it. Stark looked at her, deep into her eyes. Very softly he said, I would not have dreamed it. You will understand now many things, she said, and I was glad of my power today because I could truly give you life. She rose, and he saw that she was very tired. Her voice was dull, as though it counted over old things that no longer mattered. You see why I was afraid. If they had ever suspected that I too was of the twice-born Berald or Delgon, each alone I might have destroyed, but I could not destroy both of them. And if I had, there was still Kynon. You did what I could not, Eric John Stark. Why were you against them, Fiona? How were you proof against the poison that made them what they were? She answered angrily, Because I am weary of evil of scheming for power and shedding the blood of men as though they were sheep. I am no better than Beryl was. I, too, have lived a long time, and my hands are not clean. But perhaps, by what you help me to do, I have made up a little for my sins. 
She paused, her thoughts turned darkly inward, and it was strange to see the shadow of age touching her sweet young face. Then she said, very slowly, like an old, old woman speaking, I am weary of living. No matter where I go, I am a stranger. You can understand that, though not so well as I. There is an end to pleasure, and after that only loneliness is left. I have remembered that I was human once. That is why I set myself against their plan of empire. After all these ages I have come round full circle to the starting point, and things seem to me now as they seemed then, before I was tempted by the sending on of mines. It is a wicked thing, she cried suddenly, against nature and the gods, and it has never brought anything but evil. She caught up the rod and held it in her hands. This is the last, she said. Cities die, and nations perish, and material things, even such as these, are destroyed. One by one the twice-born have perished also, through accident or swift disease or murder, as Beryl would have slain Delgon. Now only this and I are left. Quite suddenly she flung the rod against the coral, and it broke in a cloudy flame and a tinkling of crystal shards. Then one by one she broke the crowns. She stood still for a long moment. Then she whispered, Now only I am left. Again there was silence, and Stark was shaken by the magnitude of the thing that she had done. Her slim girl's body somehow took on the stature of a goddess. After a while he went to her and said awkwardly, "'I have not thanked you, Fiona. You brought me here. You saved me.' "'Kiss me once, then,' she answered, and raised her lips to his. For I love you, Eric John Stark, and that is the pity of it, because I am not for you, nor for any man." He kissed her, very tenderly, and there was the bitter taste of tears on her soft lips. "'Now come,' she whispered and took his hand. She led him back through the labyrinth, into the palace, and then out again into the streets of Sinharat. Stark saw that it was sunset, and that the city was deserted. The tribes of Kesh and Shun had broken camp and gone. There was a beast ready for him, supplied with food and water. Fiona asked him where he wished to go, and pointed the way to Tarak. "'And you?' he asked. "'Where will you go, little one?' I have not thought. She lifted her head, and the wind played with her dark hair. She did not smile, and yet suddenly Stark knew that she was happy. I am free of a great burden, she whispered. I shall stay here for a while and think, and after that I shall know what to do. But whatever it is, there will be no evil in it, and in the end I shall rest. He mounted, and she looked up at him, with a look that wrung his heart, although it was not sad. 
Go now, she said, and the gods go with you. And with you. He bent and kissed her once again, and then rode away down to the coral cliffs. Far out on the desert he turned and looked back once at the white towers of Sinharat, rising against the larger moon. End of Part 7 End of Queen of the Martian Catacombs by Lee Douglas Brackett This book performed by Phil Chenevere, January 2021